Grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider that hymn, Lamb of God, pure and holy, serving as our guide this Lenten season tonight, we also consider these words that you heard from the first reading, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, this verse, For the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So far our text, dear friends in Christ. Lamb of God, pure and holy. In our midweek Lenten services, our thoughts, as mentioned this year, are directed by this jewel of a hymn, composed by, attributed to Nicholas Decius. This week, on top of our consideration of the first phrase, we add the next phrase. To Lamb of God, pure and holy, we add this, who on the cross did suffer. On its surface, that full statement is foolish. Lambs don't belong on crosses, but on altars. Crosses belong to criminals. Unless we understand the cross to be the altar and the lamb to be the criminal, the statement that we sing in that hymn and that we so often and and, and confess and is confessed so well by that hymn remains to those who otherwise would hear it, it remains foolish. As we consider things tonight, we recall that lambs are, in fact, criminals. The criminals, and they really always have been. From as early as Abel, we find lambs, indeed the very best of them, upon the altar of offering. And with the divine directives given to Moses in Exodus, but especially in the book of Leviticus, we see clearly the lamb take its age-enduring liturgical place and criminal lot in the life of God's people. For it was by God's own instruction, remember, that lambs were to be the receptacles of sin. They were to bear the burden. They'd symbolically yet oh so painfully bear the price, pay the price for the sins and the trespasses of all the people. Consider it. And so imagine you yourself, you're you're an Old Testament member of the church and you had sins that you know had to be forgiven. How were they dealt with? Well, firstly, consider is the one that you're thinking of, the sin you're thinking of, is it a deliberate one? Is it a deliberate offense, a, a trespass as we call it? In that upset with your wife, for instance, for something, you, you drop a few words that you know are going to hurt, and they hurt deeply. Or having been hurt by your husband, you intentionally perhaps play the silent card. You stop speaking to him, even when he expresses regret, because, and you do because you know it puts you well in the driver's seat. Or is the one you're thinking of an unintentional sin so that carelessly and thoughtlessly you didn't say to your wife what she so needed to hear from your lips at that time? Or, or perhaps you didn't regard your neighbor's need as carefully and as closely and as thoughtfully as you should have. Deliberate or intentional, you bring your lamb to the priest. You bring your lamb in the one case and the other case you bring your ram as it was, the male version of the lamb, and you bring it to the priest, and there the priest holding it, you place your hand on that woolly head, you place it on the head of the thing to show and to symbolize that your trespass, your sin, 
is being transferred from you to it. And it thereby becomes the criminal. It becomes the offender against the neighbor. It becomes the offender against God. And there you watch it. You touched it and now you watch it. And you hear it and you listen to it as the priest with his knife does to it and its life what should have been done to you and yours. And for generation upon Hebrew generation, in this way, lambs became the substitute criminal. And they paid the criminal's price. But you know well, they knew it well then too, not all the blood of beasts, not lamb or ram or bull or goat, not all the blood of beasts on all the Jewish altars slain could ever really wash away any single eternal stain. But here's the thing, they were never intended to. Early Lutheran pastor, author of part of our Lutheran confessions, indeed a student of Martin Luther named David Catraeus, he put it so well when he said this, we can have no doubt that each and every Levitical sacrifice, that the sacrifices by the Levites, the priests of the bulls and the rams of the sheep, lambs and and, and goats and rams, every in each Levitical sacrifice, he says, was a sermon A sermon, he says, on the singular sacrifice and the benefits of Jesus Christ who was to come. A sermon. For you see, each time a woolly lamb without blemish or spot was touched by the guilty hand and received that man's guilt or the woman's guilt or the child's guilt and and, and all the due penalty that came with that guilt, each and every one directed the penitent eyes ahead. To him, the one upon whom we look backwards, this side of the cross, the one upon whom we look backwards, namely the singular Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. God's chosen Lamb was his own Son. For Scripture says the Lord laid on him, transferred onto him, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In his wisdom, God's chosen lamb was his son, and in his wisdom, his chosen altar was the criminal's cross. The cross, graphically and precisely depicted by the psalmist David in the words that we sang just a couple minutes ago from the 22nd Psalm. Graphically and precisely depicted by the psalmist David with the foresight that only the Holy Spirit has. Because you see, crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet as a a, a way of, of execution when David wrote these words. Crucifixion was indeed a brutal sentence for the criminally cursed. And noted well, it was indeed for the cursed. Scripture itself said, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And so you see, the cross was a most fitting altar. For this lamb who willingly has been cursed with and who takes away the sin of all the world. I've shared this with you before, but this remark of Martin Luther, it deserves to be heard here again tonight. He says, all the prophets did foresee in the spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor and murderer and adulterer and thief and rebel and blasphemer, criminal, that ever was or ever could be in all the world. 
For he writes, he being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, now is not an innocent person and without sins, but is a sinner. And he continues, our most merciful father sent his only begotten son into the world and laid on him, transferred to him, placed on him the sins of all men, saying, be thou Peter. That denier, Paul, that persecutor, that blasphemer and cruel oppressor, be thou David, that adulterer and that sinner also which did eat the fruit in paradise. Be that thief which hanged upon the cross and briefly, my son, be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. And see therefore that thou payest and satisfy with your blood and death for them all. Luther concludes, by this means the whole world is purged and cleansed from all sins. Do you see? The lamb is the criminal. And as far as our transgressions reach, this lamb, Christ Jesus, always will be. For scripture itself says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. On the wooden two-beamed altar of Jesus' cross, the perfect Lamb of God, laden with the transgressions of every hand, of every man, was pierced through and suffered upon that altar in the intense flames of God's wrath. And like foreshadowing blood of many of those animals before him, his blood is sprinkled and applied upon those and to those for whom it was shed. Why? So that they could stand knowing full well that they've been forgiven and their sin is put behind them. Unless we understand that cross to be God's chosen altar and that Lamb, Jesus Christ, to be the criminal, that hymn that we sing and the cross that it confesses remains foolish. Very frankly, though, even when we do believe and even when we understand it to be so and confess it to be so, isn't it true that while we do confess it with our mouths, sometimes yet within we harbor the same doubts about it that the sign seekers and the wisdom wanters always have and always will? Having heard, consider having heard this message of the cross so many times and perhaps having now grown callous a bit to it, or casual before it, and so less appreciative of it over time, don't we sometimes think there really would have to be more than this? A man? A cross? It's awfully simplistic. It's awfully weak, it would seem. We'd like God to work through wonders Signs, And frankly, we expect his wisdom to be wise. At least wiser than that. After all, our God works so mightily in those olden and sometimes they seem like the golden days of scripture. Why not now here for me? Why not? Sins, after all, former sins, and you know it well. You know well that former sins can bear down on us just as hard and pursue us just as far as those former captives of the Hebrews, the Pharaoh's hosts on chariot. 
How about parting a sea to deliver me? How about some sign of strength beyond this cross? Or maybe the impact of wrong in your life is so big and so breathtaking that you feel it needs an equally breathtaking sign to settle it because a single simple cross just won't do for you. Not for you. Or maybe your past is so profoundly tangled that the better part of worldly wisdom suggests that it's going to take a whole lot more than a crucified man to release you from all the layers of wrong that you've piled up for yourself. And so you better get started. And whatever it is that you have to pursue, you best get started, says worldly wisdom. Or maybe you're allowing yourself to become convinced, increasingly so, that Scripture and the church have been wrong all along in this thing so long called sin that's said to be your guilt before God and that which separates you from Him forever and eternally. It's actually no more than psychobabble. Maybe really only a tool of manipulation under which the wise and the strong of this world certainly won't be pinned. Where's the worldly wise? Where's the scribe, the disputer of this age? Sometimes not very far away at all. Sometimes he's as near as the man in the mirror, isn't he? Friend, you can ignore sin. I suppose just like you can ignore the doctor's diagnosis that the thing is terminal. But ignoring it doesn't mean it's not real. You can think it all too much to be met by a criminal's cross. You can think it all too much to be met by that cross, but it doesn't mean that it's not met by a simple cross. Drawing on your worldly wisdom, you can think it all a bit simple and that it's all much ado about very little. And I suppose you'd be right if God himself were not the one on the cross and in the scale, if he himself is not the lamb on the altar. Again, Luther, we Christians must know that if God is not in the scale to give it weight, our side of the scale sinks to the ground. What I mean is this, if it can't be said that God and not a mere man dies for us, we're lost. But if God's death and a God who has died lie in the balance, his side goes down and ours snaps up as though it were light and empty, but he can't, we can't speak of God's death without him first becoming man. Friends, behold it. Mark the miracle of time, God in the flesh, himself on that cross, on that cursed tree. Why? To provide a full ransom, a full price of infinite weight for your sin, and mine, sins that are so dangerously real. The foolishness of God's cross is far wiser than the misguided wisdom of men. And the weakness of his cross is stronger than the greatest collective strength that all men of all time could ever muster. To the perishing, Christ's cross is folly. But to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. And it's well worth singing about. Lamb of God, pure and holy, who on the cross did suffer.
In Jesus' name, amen.